Today we're going to continue talking about a disruptive story that should have died in Rome, but it didn't. It's the story of Jesus of Nazareth as told by Simon Peter. Jesus is one of Jesus' most famous disciples. Uh, Peter dictated it too, and it was edited by a guy named John Mark, who was Peter's traveling companion. For over 30 years, Peter traveled around and told his story over and over and over. And now, Peter's in his 60s and he's imprisoned in Rome. And he might or might not know that he is not going to leave Rome alive. And so Peter is either in a prison cell or maybe he's under house arrest. And Mark is either with Peter or maybe he just heard Peter tell these stories a hundred times. And what Peter tells Mark comes to us as the Gospel of Mark. And Peter died somewhere around 64 AD during the reign of Emperor Nero. And this first century document written by Mark from Peter's account would eventually be collected with some of Paul's letters, some other letters, and then the other Gospels that would be written, Matthew, Luke, and John, and then the Old Testament. And the collection would be put together and it would become ultimately called the Bible. But for the next few minutes, and really for the next few weeks, this won't be reading from the Bible. Because Mark didn't record Peter's experience with Jesus for the purpose of including it in the Bible. Mark wasn't writing the Bible. Mark was documenting Peter's experience with Jesus. So, as we read this account of the life of Jesus, remember that Peter shared this information as an eyewitness of all the events with Jesus, the, the conversations of Jesus, and the teachings of Jesus. And this is how Mark's account from Peter starts describing Jesus in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. What is the good news, you might ask? Well, we might answer something like, well, Jesus died for my sin. If I put my faith in him, then I get to go to heaven when I die. And until then, I'm just supposed to be good. But Jesus wasn't talking about any of that yet because none of that happened yet. Jesus' message was constantly what started in verse 15. The time has come. That the waiting is over and everything that came before in the pagan world and everything that came before in the Jewish world was all preparation for what God is doing in this moment right here, Jesus would say. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And the kingdom of God is near because the king is near. The kingdom of God is simply God's rule. God's authority is near because God is near. And then Jesus would say, and the appropriate response to the fact that the time has come and that God is doing something new, the appropriate response to that is to repent and believe the good news. And when Jesus said the word repent, he likely was inviting people to sort of change the way they were thinking or sort of turn their life in a slightly different direction or maybe a big different direction. He wanted them to turn in the direction of a kingdom with a different type of king, to embrace it, to face it. This was not simply a new way to die, but a new way of living. And Jesus would say, I want you to understand the way God sees you, the way God sees the world. And God wanted you to know this so much that he sent me as a rep his representative, that the kingdom of God has come because the king is in town. And Peter says that as Jesus began teaching this new way of living, verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Verse 28, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And if you think about the area of Israel in the Middle East as sort of like a vertical image in the north and the south, at the very top in the north is the Sea of Galilee. And at the bottom in the south is the Dead Sea. And both seas are sort of connected by the Jordan River that would run between them. And at the top near the Sea of Galilee is a region known as Galilee. And Peter was from this area and says that throughout the whole region of Galilee, word spread that something fantastic and amazing has come near. And then sort of Peter introduces us to, and sort of really confronts us with three very disruptive and paradigm-shifting instances. 
And when you sort of piece them together, uh, it becomes very clear that Peter wants us to know how disruptive Jesus' ministry and teaching were. Uh, Jesus was dis disruptive in the sense that everyone already had a worldview. Uh, there was a pagan worldview, there was a Roman worldview, there was a Greek worldview, uh, a Jewish worldview. And Jesus steps onto the pages of history and he introduces a new way of thinking of just about everything. <laughs> now, you wouldn't know anything about something being disruptive to life as you know it, would you? Like, that hasn't happened to you at all. So at the beginning of his gospel account, Peter gives us three narratives that gives us a glimpse of just how different the worldview of this kingdom of God was going to be from their own worldview. And here's a quick overview of these stories. Uh, first off, Jesus ignored certain religious protocol. Jesus claimed to have authority to forgive sin. And Jesus was uncomfortably comfortable with unrepentant sinners. And one of Peter's points throughout these instances is that Jesus was the king who came to sort of reverse the order of everything. And Peter was there for these instances, and, and looking back, he probably realized that Jesus came along and removed these three obstacles to God. But then unfortunately, a few hundred years later, the church took these three obstacles that Jesus had removed and sort of put them back into the equation. In fact, one of these three may be your obstacle to God. Perhaps the reason that you were sort of bumped out of church was some kind of ridiculous religious thing that you thought to yourself, that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. If they're going to be focused on that religious thing, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, maybe you walked away from faith or you never really considered faith because of some certain religious protocol to which Peter says, hang with me. You're not going to believe what Jesus did. Uh, perhaps maybe for you, you, you struggle believing that God would actually forgive your sin. You believe God can forgive everyone else's sin, but if people knew what you've done or what you haven't done, uh, what you promised to do and you never follow through on, whatever your thing is, you aren't sure you could ever have actual peace with God. And Peter would say, I'm so glad you're reading my account. Uh, maybe you think that you will never line up to the standard of Jesus. So you think you have like some work to do before you could ever follow Jesus. And Peter says again, I'm so glad you're following me on my journey. Because when we were with Jesus, we were stunned and shocked at how comfortable Jesus was, not just with people who had sinned, but with people who hadn't even left their sin yet. Which of those obstacles has gotten in the way, gotten in your way of following Jesus? Religious protocols, forgiving your sin, or sort of feeling like you have some work to do first? We're going to be starting in Mark chapter 1. You can follow along in the Bible app. If you don't have the Bible app, head to bible.com app. Once you're in the app, head to the more menu option in the bottom right corner, select events, and you can find our church. We'll also have the notes and verses on the screen as well. We're going to start in Mark chapter 1, beginning in the verse 39. So he traveled, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus. Now in ancient times, almost any kind of skin rash or disease really scared people to death. And they would immediately put that person in a category of leprosy. Uh, meaning basically go and live with the other lepers until or if you ever become clean again. And there was a sense in which people with leprosy sort of hung between heaven and earth. Uh, they were unable to die and they were unable to participate in life. They watched the world go on around them and they couldn't participate. They maybe watched their own children grow up from afar. They watched their husband or wife become their ex-husband or ex-wife and raise their kids and maybe raise other people's kids. They watched people prosper and the world change, but they couldn't participate. They were shunned, and no one would ever touch them. 
Verse 40, a man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Now, no matter what you may have heard about Christian faith or religion, that kind of faith from the leper is perfect faith because perfect faith is confidence, confident Jesus can, hopeful Jesus will. And the leper basically said, I believe you can cleanse me of my leprosy, but I don't know if you will. And that's perfect faith. And yet, Jesus' reaction to this man is kind of shocking. It was so shocking, in fact, that later on, scribes making copies of this gospel Mark would actually change a word in Mark's text to try to protect Jesus' reputation. And in this translation, though, it says Jesus was moved with compassion, though another translation sort of highlights Jesus' shocking reaction. Jesus was indignant. Now, Jesus was angry? Like, why was Jesus angry? Well, Jesus wasn't angry at the leper. He was probably angry at the situation. Jesus was angry that neither the disease nor the social taboo associated with this disease should exist. This shouldn't be. And then Peter tells us, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out. It's likely that Peter and the rest of the group of the guys with Jesus were thinking like, oh no, don't touch him. If you touch him, Jesus, you become ceremonially unclean. And then we have to make this six or seven day journey all the way from the north in Galilee down to the south in Jerusalem to go to the temple to get you sort of cleaned up. So if you're going to do something for this guy, just say something. Don't touch him. Verse 41, move with compassion. Jesus reached out and touched him. Because Jesus was not constrained by religious protocol. Jesus chose to meet needs while ignoring religious and political protocol. Because in that culture, just like in our culture right now, religion and politics can sort of blend together at times. And Jesus ignores the religious and the political protocol, and he touches this leper, which was a bit dangerous. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. And here's this tension that we sort of find throughout Jesus' ministry, and Peter highlights it for us. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. And the same instructions for Moses that, that helped a former leper be reintroduced into society by giving an offering to God at the temple, that those same instructions also instructed anyone who touches a person with leprosy to make that same journey to the temple and make an offering. However, Jesus breaks with Moses uh, because even though Jesus touched this leper, he doesn't go to the temple because this was really a time of transition, that things were slowly changing, that the old was passing away. And this new Jesus way was different than the previous systems. Verse 45, But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. And as a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. Peter has shown us that Jesus came to sort of flip the way that we see things and people in this first disruptive instance, that Jesus ignored certain religious protocol. And then Peter moves us along to the next instance, Mark chapter 2, verse 2. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. That these men arrived to see the crowd so big that there's no way they can get their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And Peter was there for this and tells us what they do next. Verse 4, they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. 
Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. So, so Peter was the homeowner there, like the original grumpy old man saying, maybe it wasn't get off my lawn, maybe it was actually get off my roof. Because this hole would have created a mess. But these friends dig this hole through the roof and they let this guy down to be near Jesus. Peter says, Jesus seeing their faith. So let's pause for a moment. How do you see faith? The faith of these friends and the paralyzed man is really similar to what we saw with the leper. Confident Jesus can, hopeful Jesus will. That they were confident Jesus could, and they were hoping that Jesus would. And Christian faith is confident that God can, and hoping that God will. Which also sort of creates a point of tension, and maybe even a list of potential legitimate questions. What if God doesn't? And why wouldn't God do this if he can? Which sort of leads us back to last week's point. When you surrender your way to God's way, you're not far from the kingdom of God. That our way seems best and right and perfect, but God's way actually is best and right and perfect. Verse 5, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man. And at this point, Peter and the other followers, they're probably all like ready for another healing because that's what they've seen before. But Jesus has a twist. Verse 5, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. And at this moment, the crowd might have sort of grown for a few different reasons. Number one, mere mortals can't forgive sin. And then the crowd and the paralyzed man also probably groaned because they weren't looking for sins to be forgiven. That's not exactly why this man came through the roof. And what Jesus said in this moment was stunning. And the implications were not lost on his audience. Like, wait a second, Jesus. You're announcing that this man's sins are forgiven and there's no sacrifice that's been made? You're announcing that this man's sins are forgiven and there's no priest involved? You're announcing that this man's sins are forgiven and there's no trip to the temple? Like, Jesus, do you think that you're greater than the temple? Uh, Do you think you can just sort of walk in here and replace hundreds of years of tradition and a whole forgiveness system? Do you think with just words you can replace everything Moses put into place? And this is what some of the audience were thinking because of what Peter tells us what happened next. Verse 6, But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? Like, this is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. That really no one had a category for what Jesus was saying. Verse 8, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? And I think Peter sort of makes a note to himself. Uh, Jesus can preach powerfully. Jesus can heal lepers. And now Jesus can read minds? Like, we need to be careful around this guy, right? Verse 9, Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now, the only time that this Greek word for easier is used is in this instance and one other instance. And both really sort of demonstrate how God is trying to reverse the order of things to show us that his kingdom is different. What is easier for him seems harder to us. What seems harder to us is easier to him. And if a person was sick, born blind, or born with some kind of ailment in the ancient way of thinking, Clearly someone had sinned or did something to cause the sickness. If you had an illness or you had a child with a physical problem, it's because you had not offered enough sacrifices to the gods, or you did something that God was punishing you for. And this is just the way they thought, that something is wrong with you because you did something wrong. And Jesus comes along and says, In the beginning, sin entered the world, and sin broke the world, which we sometimes see through sickness and death. But someone's sickness doesn't necessarily mean that that sickness was because that person 
sinned. It's because of the brokenness in the world. And here's what Jesus said, according to Peter, recorded by Mark, verse 10. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. But really, how could anyone substantiate the claim to be able to forgive sins until eternity, right? We won't know. Well, one way is by physically reversing the consequences of brokenness and sin in the world. By sort of demonstrating that God's rule, the kingdom of God, priorities, values, and power here on earth. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And if Jesus could reverse the consequences of sin and death and brokenness in a, with just a word, then perhaps he could forgive sin with a word as well. That if Jesus could overpower the powers in this world, then perhaps Jesus could establish God's kingdom in this world. Verse 12, And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. And the stunned onlookers is really Peter's way of saying, Fact check me. I was not the only person who saw this. And the crowd's response, They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. We'll look at the last instance in this disruptive trio next Sunday. But as we wrap up today, who do you most relate with from these two disruptive stories? Maybe it's the person needing help. Maybe it's the, the friends who want to help. Maybe it's the teachers who, who aren't sure G who Jesus is or if he's really for real. Maybe it's the audience who can see that God is doing something, but they aren't sure what all this means. Maybe it's none of those. Maybe you doubt that Jesus can forgive your sins. But in each of these stories, really everyone was disrupted by Jesus. And Jesus disrupted the religious protocols. Jesus disrupted those with physical ailments by healing them. Jesus disrupted those who, who questioned his authority and his ability to forgive sin. That Jesus disrupted the audience who, again, they knew something was happening, but honestly, they weren't sure what it was or who Jesus really was. And the good news is, when Jesus disrupts you, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Because remember, Jesus said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That repent idea, again, is to turn in Jesus' direction, sort of changing your way of thinking, and accept what he says about you, what he says about your sin and others, and what he says about the world around you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his story. Thank you for his example. Thank you for the way that he demonstrated this new kingdom coming to earth. And God, for all of us, we sometimes need a disruption in our life to help us to really see what you might want for us. And maybe uh, there's things that have gone on this last year, or maybe there's something outside of COVID that's happening in our life. Well, whatever it might be, God, would you help disrupt our lives in a way that we could see where you're leading us? And you could help sort of change our thinking and help us think differently about that idea. God, would you please help us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.